It's the Victorian Variety Show. This episode contains a discussion of drug manufacturing and use during the Victorian era. Listener discretion is strongly suggested. Joy's cigarettes afford immediate relief in cases of asthma, wheezing, and winter cough, and a little perseverance will effect a permanent cure. Universally recommended by the most eminent physicians and medical authors. Agreeable to use, certain in their effects, and harmless in their action, they may be safely smoked by ladies and children. This is the Victorian Variety Show. My name is Marissa, and what I just read was part of an advertisement for Cigars de Joy, aka Joy Cigarettes, that I found online. A website called The Quack Doctor cites the Medical Times and Gazette, which appears to be a prominent 19th century British medical journal, who in 1875 explained that Joy's cigarettes were, quote, very useful little agents for inhaling the smoke of stramonium, end quote, which was one of several common remedies for asthma in the late 19th century and was usually smoked via pipe before this, quote unquote, more elegant form hit the shelves of Victorian era pharmacies. How the times have changed, you may be thinking. And as an asthmatic, I have to admit I'm a bit horrified that cigarettes were considered an acceptable remedy for asthma back in the day for children and adults alike. But I like to start and end each episode of this show with a quote. And since I'm focusing on Victorian era pharmacies in this week's episode, I thought it would be appropriate to take my quotes from ads for products that one may have been able to find behind the counter of their friendly neighborhood pharmacy during this period. And also, I have a long-standing fascination with vintage medicine ads, so I thought it would be fun to read from some of them on air. Although I'll admit it was hard at first for me to find a good one that was actually readable. I'm probably going to sound like I'm about 100 years old here, complaining about print that's too small. But unfortunately, if you do a Google or Bing search of Victorian ads, you'll see that a lot of the images look like they came from posters or newspapers that were photographed, then scanned. I've been putting some examples on this show's Twitter page. So if you're not already following me over there, come on and follow me and let me know what you think about some of these ads. We definitely don't have ads like these today. And I think it's easy to criticize the so-called effectiveness of these remedies today, knowing what we know now. But as I'm about to explain, it's a bit more complicated than that. But before we say any more about the products that were available in a Victorian-era pharmacy or chemist shop, or apothecary, I think it'd be a good idea to understand why these establishments came about in the first place, and even try to visualize what a visit to one of these shops might have been like 150 or so years ago. Also, 
I want to clarify that I am going to use the words pharmacy and pharmacist in this episode for the sake of consistency. As this term is a little easier for me because the majority of the sources I consulted in putting this episode together used it. But some of the sources I consulted refer to these shops as apothecaries. According to HealthWorks Collective, an apothecary can be seen as the predecessor of the pharmacies that we see today. The main difference seems to be that in apothecaries, most of the mixing to create the remedies is done in-house. Whereas in what we now refer to as a pharmacy, the remedies that are dispensed are manufactured elsewhere. According to Britannica, prior to the Victorian era, some notable advances were made in medicine and healthcare. Medical schools were starting to appear throughout Europe, particularly in Edinburgh and Scotland. In Italy, the work of Giovanni Battista Margagni in the second half of the 18th century was forming the basis of modern day pathology and inoculation by which immunity is produced by introducing an infectious agent onto a skin surface that is abraded or absorptive, became popular in England in the 1720s. However, even though medicine during this time relied less on superstition than in previous eras, largely due to the influence of the Enlightenment and reason, it was still common to see remedies that seemed to defy all sense of logic. Some examples, which come from an article called 25 Terrifying 18th Century Remedies for What Ails You by Therese O'Neill and Scott Beggs, include attaching a, quote, live pigeon's rump, end quote, to the rear end of a child having a seizure, but I actually find that incredibly problematic, or using urine to clear specks from the eyes, which doesn't make any sense to me at all, or placing, quote, two balls of stone horse dung, end quote, on a bruise after falling. So, there was still a lot of debate and confusion about the best way to cure common ailments, to say the least. Also, it's important to remember that prior to the Victorian era, the majority of the population lived in rural areas. So even though advances were being made in medicine in the 18th century, it was largely happening in cities that housed a small percentage of the population. However, during the Industrial Revolution, millions of people were leaving the countryside to find work in cities. So, as Catherine Waite points out in an article called Victorian Medicine, the pharmacies that started to crop up early on in the Victorian era, quote, brought health care to the general population for the very first time, end quote, as the vast majority of factory and mill workers and such who weren't able to afford doctor's visits were able to be treated by their local pharmacy for free. I don't think the remedies that were sold were free, but most of them were probably very affordable. Despite the larger populations these establishments were catering to, they didn't offer up what you might call one-size-fits-all type of approach. Rather, Waite explains that Victorian pharmacists offered customized services to their customers, mixing the liquids, 
powders and herbs on their shelves with a set of tools that may seem simplistic now, but were considered essential at the time, such as a set of balanced scales that were usually made of cast iron, weights such as brass bells or discs, a hammer, mortar and pestle to crush or grind substances into powders and pastes, pill rolling devices, measuring cups, and books that contained a wide variety of information on remedies and potions. As Louise Crane explains in Drugs in Victorian Britain, most remedies made with these tools didn't require a prescription from a doctor, although pharmacies were able to fill prescriptions that were written by doctors. In addition, even though today people in both the UK and in the US receive formal training which, in most cases, includes attaining advanced degrees to become pharmacists. This wasn't the case during the Victorian era, when, in theory, almost anyone could set up a pharmacy. However, even though, as Lana Williams states in Apothecaries and Medicine in the Victorian era, a pharmacist, quote, was the lowest-ranking medical practitioner, end quote, it seems that many of them came to the profession after receiving some type of training. According to Williams, pharmacists in London usually served five-year apprenticeships, which included at least six months in a hospital. And due to what you might call the hands-on nature of this training, many pharmacists were able to perform a number of tasks regularly handled by surgeons, such as setting broken bones, treating wounds, and pulling teeth. As a result, it wasn't uncommon for pharmacies of this time to offer some minor surgical procedures in addition to preparing and dispensing medications. And this array of easily available services was needed, as aspiring physicians who were attending universities during this time normally didn't receive much clinical experience as part of their training. According to an article on the Steampunk Tribune website called Medical Doctors in the Victorian Era, physicians, whose clientele, by and large, was limited to the well-to-do, quote, were called physicians because they only administered drugs or physic. They did not deal with external injuries or perform surgeries or set bones or do physical exams other than the patient's pulse and urine, end quote. So during the Victorian era, physicians were held in the highest regard among medical practitioners because unlike surgeons, who until the mid 18th century were associated with barbers and obtained the bodies they learned their craft on from graveyards until the 1830s, they didn't really perform manual labor, we might say. Likewise, it seems that writing a prescription on a piece of paper seemed to carry more prestige than actually filling those prescriptions. However, I think we need to acknowledge the fact that Victorian-era pharmacists offered a diverse range of services and possessed an abundance of real-world knowledge. And for that reason, I would argue that they played as vital a role in their communities, if not more so, than physicians of the period. Nonetheless, 
It also needs to be acknowledged that many of the remedies crafted at the hands of pharmacists and later on by manufacturers contain substances that, to put it mildly, it's extremely difficult to imagine were ever used for medicinal purposes. Some of the substances I'm referring to are wine, opium derivatives, cocaine, and arsenic, to name just a few. Although opium was used since ancient times, it became widely available during the Victorian era. In the UK, this occurred largely due to the expansion of the British Empire. And in the US, the use of opiates grew dramatically during the Civil War in the 1860s. Due to its easy availability, opium was cheaper than alcohol. As a result, it was possible to find laudanum, a mixture of opium with water or wine, that, in an article called Victorian Drug Use, Andre Dinieco refers to as the, quote, aspirin of the 19th century, end quote, in grocery stores, pubs and taverns, barber shops, and other establishments in addition to the local pharmacy. Some of the Victorian luminaries who were known to use laudanum as a painkiller were Charles Dickens, Bram Stoker, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, George Eliot, and Wilkie Collins. And the list of writers who wrote about laudanum, or for that matter, opium, is pretty extensive. In addition to several of the writers I just mentioned, the Bronte sisters, Oscar Wilde, Robert Louis Stevenson, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, among others, found creative ways to incorporate opiates into their fiction. And Dinieco notes that the atmosphere created by Lewis Carroll in Alice in Wonderland is reminiscent of the effects opiates can create. So that should give you an idea of just how socially acceptable the use of opiates was during this time. And one definitely didn't have to hang around opium dens and learn a secret password or handshake or whatever was required to get into an opium den in order to get their hands on it. And in case you were wondering, the sale of these substances was basically unrestricted until 1868 with the passage of the Pharmacy Act, which limited the sale of poisons and quote-unquote dangerous drugs, including opiates, in Britain to qualified pharmacists. In an article called Inside the Story of America's 19th Century Opiate Addiction, Eric Tricky notes that doctors began to cut down on the use of opiates in the 1890s in the U.S., but for the most part, legislation didn't appear until early in the 20th century. According to Wikipedia, the passage of the Pharmacy Act temporarily reduced the rate of opium-related casualties. But the act really did little to restrict the sale of over-the-counter patent medicines that featured opiates, as well as cocaine and alcohol, as the so-called secret formula that ads of the period widely claimed cured a long list of ailments suffered by both adults and children, ranging from coughs and colds, constipation, diarrhea, and even gout, to so-called female troubles such as menstruation and hysteria. These patent, or also known as proprietary or often nowadays called quack formulas, 
were prominently featured in vivid ads that ran in newspapers and magazines, as well as on posters and leaflets, and had memorable names such as Merchant's Gargling Oil, which features what is quite possibly the most disturbing image I've seen in the Victorian medicine ad. And if you're curious, I did post it on this show's Twitter page on Monday. Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup, Dr. Thomas's eclectic oil, Dally's magical pill extractor, a.k.a. the great family ointment, cocaine toothache drops, which were sold by Lloyd Manufacturing Company and featured two children happily building a house. And you get the idea. These remedies were referred to as so-called patent medicines because these names were usually trademarked, not actually patented. And based on the resources I consulted, most of the remedies themselves weren't patented either. This was because a lot of these remedies contained that secret ingredient that I just mentioned. And if the manufacturers had wanted to patent them, they'd have had to divulge the secret ingredient when filling out the patent application. And on that note, I'm going to end this visit to the Victorian Pharmacy. I realize I may not have covered everything you may have been wanting to hear about, but fear not. I am planning to do more episodes on Victorian-era healthcare and medicine in the future, and I can definitely envision revisiting the Victorian-era pharmacy at some point. However, I want to end today's discussion with a quote from the Catherine Waite article that I think is important to keep in mind when we think about medicine of the era. According to Waite, quote, even though, by today's standards, some of the cures and medicines available from the Victorian doctor or over-the-counter verge on the unthinkable, some of the progress we have made in modern-day medicine can be, at least in part, attributed to some of the discoveries made by the Victorians, end quote. I do think that the focus on so-called quack medicine from that era tends to obscure that point. And although I'll be the first to admit that I find Victorian-era patent medicine ads immensely entertaining, and I can sit around looking at them for hours, at the end of the day, I think it's the availability of these drugs at the time and the claims manufacturers could get away with making about their wonder drugs, rather than the contents of the drugs themselves that I find so shocking. I'm not going to lie. I'm happy that you can't walk into a Walgreens or CVS today and find asthma cigarettes on the shelf besides Zyrtec. And you're not going to see a display for cocaine lozenges in the same aisle as Hull's or Luden's throat drops. And that's a good thing. But I think it's more intellectually honest for us to see the Victorian era drug marketing, manufacturing, and use as a predecessor of our current times, rather than as a distant historical period, and that we've come a long way since then. I can only speak to conditions in the U.S. here, because I don't know much about what the current situation's like overseas. But as was the case in Victorian times, unfortunately, opioid addiction is a big problem in many parts of the U.S., and even though Big Pharma doesn't use such colorful ads to sell their drugs, many prescription and over-the-counter drugs have an extensive list of possible side effects, including death. Even if these drugs are safe for the vast majority of people who take them, and the ads include the possible side effects as a way for the manufacturers to protect themselves, 
some of these side effects, quite frankly, are pretty disturbing. But anyway, I'd love to find out what you think. You can email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or send me a voice message using the link provided in the notes for this episode. And once again, you can also follow me on Twitter at, at VictorianVariety1. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can check out my Buy Me a Coffee page at www.buymeacoffee.com slash MarissaDF13. And finally, I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, as it'll help a lot more people find out about this show. Thanks for listening and for all of your support. I've been getting some amazing feedback on this show, and I'm so grateful for all of it. It makes me feel great to know that you're enjoying what you're hearing and that you find the subject matter interesting. I've been thoroughly enjoying the research I've been doing for this show, and I'm really glad I have the opportunity to share it with all of you. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, but as promised at the beginning of this episode, I'm going to read from another patent medicine ad from the Victorian era. This was for McGee, Marshall & Company's health-giving coca wine. And I'm not going to read the whole ad, but the part that I do read should give you a better idea of the types of promises advertisers of the era made about the restorative features of their products. I'll also include links to all of the sources I consulted in preparing for this episode in the show notes. And I hope you'll check them out and take a look at some of these ads as well. And with no further ado, here's that coca wine ad. McGee Marshall and Company Limited, health giving coca wine for fatigue of mind and body, guaranteed absolutely pure. This wine is most beneficial in cases where the stomach is weak, being absolutely free from tannin. M.M. and Company have given special attention to the production of a coca wine of highest quality, which will justify the recommendation of any medical man. M.M. and Company's coca wine is the most powerful nerve tonic of the day. It increases the appetite, promotes digestion, and produces sound and refreshing sleep without the distressing feeling so often experienced after taking opiates, hydrate of chloral, bromides, etc. Coca wine is invaluable as a strengthening medicine. It relieves nervous stability, quenches thirst, and strengthens the mental and physical powers.